Chapter 14 of Dope. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Friend. Dope by Sax Romer. Chapter 14. In the Shade of the Lonely Palm. Persian opium of good quality contains from 10 to 15 percent morphine, and Chandu, made from opium of Yezd, would contain perhaps 25 percent of this potent drug. But because in the act of smoking, distillation occurs, nothing like this quantity of morphine reaches the smoker. To the distilling process, also, may be due the different symptoms resulting from smoking Chandu and injecting morphia, or drinking tincture of opium, as De Quincey did. Rita found the flavor of the preparation to be not entirely unpleasant, having overcome an initial aversion caused by its marked medicinal tang. She grew reconciled to it and finished her first smoke without experiencing any other effect than a sensation of placid contentment. Deftly, Mrs. Sin renewed the pipe. Silence had fallen upon the party. The second pill was no more than half consumed when a growing feeling of nausea seized upon the novice, becoming so marked that she dropped the ivory pipe weakly and uttered a faint moan. Instantly, silently, Mrs. Sin was beside her. Lean forward so, she whispered softly, as if fearful of intruding her voice upon these sacred rites. In a moment you will be better. Then, if you feel faint, lie back. It is the sleep. Do not fight against it. The influence of the stronger will prevailed. Self-control and judgment are qualities among the first to succumb to opium. Rita ceased to think longingly of the clean, fresh air, of escape from these sickly fumes which seemed now to fill the room with a moving vacuum. She bent forward, her chin resting upon her breast, and gradually the deathly sickness passed. Mentally, she underwent a change, too. From an active state of resistance, the ego traversed a descending curve ending in absolute passivity. The floor had seemingly begun to revolve and was moving insidiously, so that the pattern of the carpet formed a series of concentric rings. She found this imaginary phenomenon to be soothing rather than otherwise, and resigned herself almost eagerly to the delusion. Mrs. Sin allowed her to fall back upon the cushions, so gently and so slowly that the operation appeared to occupy several minutes and to resemble that of sinking into innumerable layers of swans down. The sinuous figure bending over her grew taller with the passage of each minute, until the dark eyes of Mrs. Sin were looking down at Rita from a dizzy elevation. As often occurs in the case of a neurotic subject, Delusion as to time and space had followed the depression of the sensory cells. But surely, she mused, this could not be Mrs. Sin who towered so loftily above her. Of course, how absurd to imagine that a woman could remain motionless for so many hours, and Rita thought, now that she had been lying for several hours beneath the shadow of that tall, graceful, and protective shape. Why, it was a slender palm tree, which stretched its fan-like foliage over her. Far, far above her head the long, dusty green fronds projected from the mast-like trunk. The sun, a ball of fiery brass, burned directly in the zenith, so that the shadow of the foliage lay like a carpet about her feet. That which she had mistaken for the ever-receding eyes of Mrs. Sin, wondering with a delightful vagueness why they seemed constantly to change color, proved to be a pair of brilliantly plumaged parakeets perched upon a lofty branch of the palm. 
This was an equatorial noon, and even if she had not found herself to be under the influence of a delicious abstraction, Rita would not have moved, for, excepting the friendly palm, not another vestige of vegetation was visible right away to the horizon, nothing but an ocean of sand whereupon no living thing moved. She and the parakeets were alone in the heart of the great Sahara. But stay! Many, many miles away, a speck on the dusty carpet of the desert, something moved. Hours must elapse before that tiny figure, provided it were approaching, could reach the solitary palm. Delightedly, Rita contemplated the infinity of time. Even if the figure moved ever so slowly, she should be waiting there beneath the palm to witness its arrival. Already she had been there for a period which she was far too indolent to strive to compute. A week, perhaps. She turned her attention to the parakeets. One of them was moving, and she noted with delight that it had perceived her far below, and was endeavoring to draw the attention of its less observant companion to her presence. For many hours she lay watching it, and wondering why, since the one bird was so singularly intelligent, its companion was equally dull. When she lowered her eyes and looked out again across the sands, the figure had approached so close as to be recognizable. It was that of Mrs. Sin. Rita appreciated the fitness of her presence, and experienced no surprise, only a mild curiosity. This curiosity was not concerned with Mrs. Sin herself, but with the nature of the burden which she bore upon her head. She was dressed in a manner which Rita dreamily thought would have been inadequate in England, or even in Cuba, but which was appropriate in the Great Sahara. How exquisitely she carried herself, mused the dreamer. No doubt this fine carriage was due in part to her wearing golden shoes with heels like stilts, and in part to her having been trained to bear heavy burdens upon her head. Rita remembered that Sir Lucian had once described to her the elegant deportment of the Arab women, ascribing it to their custom of carrying water jugs in that way. The appearance of the speck on the horizon had marked the height of her trance. Her recognition of Mrs. Sin had signalized the decline of the Chantu influence. Now, the intrusion of a definite, uncontorted memory was evidence of returning cerebral activity. Rita had no recollection of the sunset. Indeed, she had failed to perceive any change in the form and position of the shadow cast by the foliage. It had spread an ebony patch equally about the bowl of the tree, so that the sun must have been immediately overhead. But, of course, she had lain watching the parakeets for several hours, and now night had fallen. The desert mounds were touched with silver. The sky was a nest of diamonds, and the moon cast a shadow of the palm like a bar of ebony right across the prospect to the rim of the sky-dome. Mrs. Sin stood before her, one half of her lithe body concealed by this strange black shadow, and the other half gleaming in the moonlight, so that she resembled a beautiful ivory statue which some iconoclast had cut in two. Placing her burden upon the ground, Mrs. Sin knelt down before Rita and reverently kissed her hand, whispering, I am your slave, my poppy queen. She spoke in a strange language, no doubt some African tongue, but one which Rita understood perfectly. Then she laid one hand upon the object which she had carried on her head, and which now proved to be a large lacquered casket covered with Chinese figures and bound by three hoops of gold. It had a very curious shape. Do you command that the chest be opened? she asked. Yes, answered Rita languidly. Mrs. Sin threw up the lid, and from the interior of the casket, which, because of the glare of the moonlight, seemed every moment to assume a new form, 
drew out a bronze lamp. The sacred lamp, she whispered, and placed it on the sand. Do you command that it be lighted? Rita inclined her head. The lamp became lighted in what manner she did not observe, nor was she curious to learn. Next from the large casket, Mrs. Sin took another smaller casket and a very long, tapering silver bodkin. The first casket had perceptibly increased in size. It was certainly much larger than Rita had supposed, for now, out from its shadowy interior, Mrs. Sin began to take pipes, long pipes and short pipes, pipes of gold and pipes of silver, pipes of ivory and pipes of jade. Some were carved to represent the heads of demons. Some had the bodies of serpents wreathed about them. Others were encrusted with precious gems and filled the night with the venomous sheen of emeralds, the blood rays of rubies, and golden glow of topaz, while the spear points of diamonds flashed a challenge to the stars. "'Do you command that the pipes be lighted?' asked the harsh voice. Rita desired to answer no, but heard herself saying, "'Yes.' Thereupon, from a thousand bowls linking that lonely palm to the remote horizon, a thousand elven fires arose, blue-tongued and spiritous. Gray pencilings of smoke stole straightly upward to the sky, so that look where she would, Rita could discern nothing but these countless thin, faintly wavering vertical lines of vapor. The dimensions of the lacquered casket had increased so vastly as to conceal the kneeling figure of Mrs. Sin, and staring at it wonderingly, Rita suddenly perceived that it was not an ordinary casket. She knew at last why its shape had struck her as being unusual. It was a Chinese coffin. The smell of the burning opium was stifling her. Those remorseless threads of smoke were closing in, twining themselves about her throat. It was becoming cold, too, and the moonlight was growing dim. The position of the moon had changed, of course, as the night had stolen on towards morning, and now it hung dimly before her. The smoke obscured it. But was this smoke obscuring the moon? Rita moved her hands for the first time since she had found herself under the palm tree, weakly fending off those vaporous tentacles which were seeking to entwine themselves about her throat. Of course, it was not smoke obscuring the moon, she decided. It was a lamp upheld by an ivory figure a lamp with a Chinese shade. A subdued roaring sound became audible, and this was occasioned by the gas fire burning behind the Japanese screen on which gaily plumaged birds sported in the branches of golden palms. Rita raised her hands to her eyes. Mist obscured her sight. Swiftly, now, reality was asserting itself and banishing the phantasmagoria conjured up by Chen Du. In her dim, cushioned corner, Molly Gretna lay back against the wall, her face pale and her weak mouth foolishly agape. Cyrus Kilfane was indistinguishable from the pile of rugs amid which he sprawled by the table, and of Sir Lucian Pine nothing was to be seen but the outstretched legs and feet which projected grotesquely from a recess. Seated, oriental fashion, upon an improvised divan near the grand piano and propped up by a number of garish cushions, Rita beheld Mrs. Sin. The long bamboo pipe had fallen from her listless fingers. Her face wore an expression of mystic rapture like that characterizing the features of some Chinese Buddhas. Fear, unaccountable but uncontrollable, suddenly seized upon Rita. She felt weak and dizzy, but she struggled partly upright. "'Lucy!' she whispered. Her voice was not under control, and once more she strove to call to Pine. "'Lucy!' came the hoarse whisper again. 
The fire continued its muted roaring, but no other sound answered to the appeal. A horror of the companionship in which she found herself thereupon took possession of the girl. She must escape from these sleepers, whose spirits had been expelled by the potent necromancer, Opium, from these empty tenements whose occupants had fled. The idea of the cool night air in the open streets was delicious. She staggered to her feet, swaying drunkenly, but determined to reach the door. She shuddered because of a feeling of internal chill which assailed her, but step by step crept across the room, opened the door, and tottered out into the hallway. There was no sound in the flat. Presumably Kilfane's man had retired, or perhaps he too was a devotee. Rita's fur coat hung upon the rack, and although her fingers appeared to have lost all their strength and her arm to have become weak as that of an infant, she succeeded in detaching the coat from the hook. Not pausing to put it on, she opened the door and stumbled out on to the darkened landing. Whereas her first impulse had been to awaken someone, preferably Sir Lucian, now her sole desire was to escape undetected. She began to feel less dizzy, and having paused for a moment on the landing, she succeeded in getting her coat on. Then she closed the door as quietly as possible, and clutching the handrail began to grope her way downstairs. There was only one flight, she remembered, and a short passage leading to the street door. She reached the passage without mishap and saw a faint light ahead. The fastenings gave her some trouble, but finally her efforts were successful and she found herself standing in deserted Duke Street. There was no moon, but the sky was cloudless. She had no idea of the time, but because of the stillness of the surrounding streets, she knew that it must be very late. She set out for her flat, walking slowly and wondering what explanation she should offer if a constable observed her. Oxford Street showed deserted as far as the eye could reach, and her light footsteps seemed to awaken a hundred echoes. Having proceeded for some distance without meeting anyone, she observed, and experienced a childish alarm, the headlights of an approaching car. Instantly, the idea of hiding presented itself to her, but so rapidly did the big automobile speed along the empty thoroughfare that Rita was just passing a street lamp as the car raced by, and she must therefore have been clearly visible to the occupants. Never for a moment glancing aside, Rita pressed on as quickly as she could. Then her vague alarm became actual terror. She heard the brakes being applied to the car and heard the gritty sound of the tires upon the roadway as the vehicle's headlong progress was suddenly checked. She had been seen, perhaps recognized, and whoever was in the car proposed to return to speak to her. If her strength had allowed, she would have run, but now it threatened to desert her altogether, and she tottered weakly. A pattering of footsteps came from behind. Someone was running back to overtake her. Recognizing escape to be impossible, Rita turned just as the runner came up with her. Rita, he cried rather breathlessly, Miss Dresden. She stood very still, looking at the speaker. It was Mont Irvin. End of chapter 14